My name is Clancy, and I'm a visiting pastor from Ohio. The church has invited me up here to preach for the month of August, and it has been a joy and a lot of fun and a lot of work being around all you guys. Uh, you guys are active people, and I uh, want to say hi to my wife, Sandy, who goes home today. Everybody go, hmm. I know. I'm going to be two weeks without her. I think I can do it, but 36 years of marriage. Uh, she's awesome, but she goes home today. And last hour, some friends of ours from Ohio came to church. They visited us. They were surprised us. Their son uh, is serving up in Anchorage at Jay Bear. And uh, so they were here, John and Deb uh, Roush. So that was, that was a lot of fun. So I understand there's a 5K after church. Is that right? So uh, I guess the options were walk, right? Run, bike, maybe? Does anybody bike? Right? Okay. Uh, golf cart? Because that's what, that's what I feel like I need because yesterday Sandy and I did something big, big for us. Uh, we went down to Homer and we took a water taxi over to a trailhead uh, called uh, Grace Ridge. And it took us six and a half hours to do this hike and uh, nine plus miles, 3,100 feet in elevation gain. And then last night before we crawled in bed, she goes, honey, 27,000 steps on that hike. So that was big for us. And so in this month of August, we are looking at some big stories in the Old Testament. And for me, I think it's true for you too, that stories inspire us. You know, we love sitting around and telling stories. Stories help us. They help us believe. That's one of the things I love about the Old Testament stories is it, it just puts God in his place. It shows the power and wonder and grandeur and glory of our God. Not as though the New Testament doesn't, especially the book of Revelation, which I'm trying to read through as many times as I can in this calendar year in my quiet time. And it's been very good, but very sobering in that because you see the culmination of the ages. You see Jesus in all of his glory and all of his justice he brings to the earth. So these stories inspire us. They help give us clarity and at times they force a decision. Especially when we know that these stories are true. All of the stories in the Old Testament are his stories. See what I did there? They're his stories. They are safely recorded for us in his word. And these stories are of real people. When we look at the story of Elijah today, you're going to see, especially next week and as I wrap up this series, he's a real dude in real time and space and real struggles. So they're real stories, real people, real events, real history. And they're God's revelations to humanity the world over. All the Old Testament covenants, all the Old Testament histories are from Him, God. And they point to the one redemptive point in time for the arrival of the ultimate Savior, the ultimate prophet, priest, and King, the Lord Jesus. So I want to remind you today, especially young people, listen to me. I want to remind you that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that your faith rests on a very, very firm foundation. God makes promises, and he keeps those promises. So in this series on Foundations of Hope, we're looking at Moses and Elijah. The New Testament makes it clear that these two guys are representative of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. 
And so to really grasp the importance of whatever story you might be reading, it's vital to understand the historical setting. Some might call it context. So if you'll bear with me for just a moment, I want to ask you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 18 and, and hold there for just a moment as I kind of set the table, the, the historical realities of the Old Testament kind of help hold together the actual story that we're looking at today in the life of Elijah. So in the Old Testament, the Bible teaches that Abraham is a very leading figure in the Old Testament. He had faith like no other. God saw his faith. And he credited it to him as righteousness. He believed that there was one true superior God. Why is that significant? Because in his day, like in our day, really, the world was awash with idols and ancestor worship and deities and pharaohs and myths and, and all kinds of uh, thoughts about what is out there in the world. And his day demonstrates that mankind can't help but worship something. The earth, the sky, a river, a bird, an idea. And Abraham's family was called by God, based on Abraham's faith, to be a witness to the nations around them. And in the fullness of time, God would bring his one true son to deliver the world from sin. So Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, later to be known as Israel. Israel had 12 sons. One of his sons, Joseph, was betrayed by his jealous brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt. And the Bible says that Joseph was given favor in that country, and he became very prominent. Jacob thought that Joseph was long dead. At least that's what his sons told him. But meanwhile, down in Egypt, Joseph was becoming a person of importance, and there was a famine in the land back home, and God providentially bought, brought that family down into Egypt to seek some help from the famine. And when they found out that Joseph was still alive, he said these famous words, what you guys meant for evil, God meant for good to accomplish what he is doing right now. Well, after Israel passed away, the nation of Israel, his descendants thrived in Egypt and they became a threat, became a threat to Pharaoh, a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And they enslaved them, the Egyptians enslaved, enslaved the Hebrews for 400 plus years. And as we've learned the last few weekends, that Moses was raised up as a deliverer. Moses, through the power of God, delivered the people from slavery they're out in the wilderness wandering for 40 years, and then through Joshua, they're brought into the promised land. And after the days of Joshua, God raises up judges. They were like governors. These are people like Gideon and Deborah and Samson. But in the days of the judges, you may know this, uh, in the days of the judges, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God raises up Samuel at that time in history, as a, a very important transitional figure, moving the people from the days of the judges into the days of monarchy, into the days of a king. And the Bible teaches that the people of Israel wanted to have things like the nations around them. Instead of being unique, instead of standing apart, instead of taking a stand, they wanted a king just like the nations around them. So God 
gave him a king. His name was Saul, and it didn't go well. Soon after Saul's demise, God raised up David. Probably one of the more popular individuals of the Old Testament. He wrote the Psalms, and he was the father of Solomon. After David moves off the scene, God gives Solomon immense wisdom and immense wealth. But Solomon doesn't trend well. Solomon had incredible wisdom, but he also committed incredible sins. He married hundreds of foreign wives and built high places for all of their gods. And it led to massive consequences and judgment from God, not the least of which was the nation crashing into civil war and the the nation split in two. You had the nation of Israel in the north with the capital city of Samaria. None of the northern kings ever followed God. The southern kingdom of Judah and its capital city of Jerusalem at times followed God. Eventually, both nations, because of the punishment that God had to bring upon them, were exiled. The northern kingdom was exiled into Assyria, and the southern kingdom was exiled into Babylon. But in the meantime, God would send prophets to them to call them back to the one true God, to call them back to the safety and security of following the one true God. So this is where we pick up the personality of Elijah, a real person who kind of like like flashes onto the scene in 1 Kings chapter 18. So if you join me there and follow along, uh, I want to give you just a little more context. God had brought drought on the land as punishment for them going after other gods. They went after primarily after the god Baal. And Baal worship is, well, let me just read what Baal worship was like. The Canaanites worshipped Baal, the sun god and the storm god. He could bring the sun, he could bring the rain. He was essentially a fertility god. He's depicted most often holding a lightning bolt. And as they worshipped this god as a fertility god, they prayed to him. The people who once worshipped the one true god would pray to Baal and he might give that he might give them crops and he might give them kids. And at times, the only way to appease this uh, sun god or this god of fertility, uh, the only way you could appease this god was through human sacrifice. Unfortunately, it wasn't uh, very often grown individuals, but firstborn children. Jeremiah 19 uh, depicts some of this. And at times, the priests of Baal would appeal to their god through rites of wild abandon loud, ecstatic cries, and self-inflicted injury. And so you have this disgusting, horrible, abusive, ritualistic God that the men and women were pursuing. Child sacrifice, ritual prostitution, self-mutilization, all were common practices, and God was calling them back through a drought. So we pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 18, Just follow along, beginning in verse 1. God calls this particular prophet by the name of Elijah. He comes on the scene, and verse 1 of 1 Kings 18 says this. After a long time, in the third year of the drought, that is, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go, 
Present yourself to Ahab. He was the king in the northern country of Israel at that time. And I will send rain on the land. God's about to bring judgment. God's about to bring recovery from their own failure. He's going to do something powerful to call them back in verse 2. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. So I want you to, to remember as we start this story that God's beef was not with the people themselves. It says here in verse 2 that uh, Elijah went up to present himself to Ahab and this famine was severe in Samaria, again, the capital city. A few chapters before this, we, we read that Ahab had had an altar, very elaborate altar built to Baal in the capital city of Samaria to bring the power of Baal to him and to his capital city. Well, God's judgment came strong where the altar was. So it goes on to say in verse 3, And Ahab had summoned Obadiah to himself, who was in charge of his palace. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. In other words, God had his man on the inside for his purposes. While Jezebel, verse 4, was killing off all the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said, uh, to Obadiah, I want you to go through all the land to all the springs and valleys that you know of. Maybe we can find some grass to keep our horses and mules alive so we won't have to kill them and eat them. So they divided the land. I, I, I threw the eat them in there. That's really what he was saying. Verse 6. So they divided the land that they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my Lord, Elijah? So Elijah has a very risky job these days. He's trying to keep himself alive and available to serve God. Yes, verse 8, he says, Go tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are holding your servant uh, you're handing your servant over to Ahab to put him to death. As surely as the Lord our God lives, there is not a nation or a kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or a kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear, probably by Baal, that they couldn't find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here? I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord will carry you when you leave. If I go and tell Ahab that you are here and he doesn't find you, he'll kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did in it, when I did when Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here, he'll kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So something big is about to go down. Verse 16, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah, and when he saw Elijah, he said, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. And so Elijah is about to throw down, and he wants the common people there. Verse 19, now, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. 
So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel, verse 20, and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And this is what the people did. Look what it says. said nothing. Nothing. They thought, listen, they thought they would be safe in indecision. They thought they might be safe by not making a commitment. And a lot of people do that. Maybe there's some in this room that do that even now. You've taken the posture, prove it, God. It's the worst thing the people could have done. They could have repented right then. They could have chosen to follow. But as we saw in the story of Moses, we're going to see now God never settles for second place and he doesn't settle for indecision. I mean, Jesus made it clear, right? Are you going to drop your nets and follow me? That kind of fits up here in Alaska, right? You're going to drop your nets and follow me Even in the book of Revelation, I read over and over again again this year, you know, are you just lukewarm? It's not going to end well. Like that famous philosopher Getty Lee from the rock band Rush once said, (laughs) if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Some of you are going to listen to that song this afternoon. I just know it. Verse 22, then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Now, you're probably saying, what's he saying there? You know, Obadiah just told him there's, there's a whole bunch, but I think Elijah is saying, I guess I'm the guy for the moment, kind of like Esther for such a time as this. I'm the one who's going to step up and have faith and throw down here. But Baal has, I think he's kind of like contrasting Look what Baal needs. These hundreds of prophets, I'm one. Verse 23, get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but don't set fire to it. Not even close. Keep all the flames away so there's no cheating. I will prepare the other bull Put it on the wood and not set fire to it. Then you guys go first. You call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers wins. He's God. And all the people were like, this sounds like fun. This sounds interesting. It's good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us! They shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. 
probably at first how they were dancing. Do you know how some people think they can dance? Especially guys? <laughs> you're just like, nope, that's not good what you're doing. So he gets a little confident and he says, shout louder. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Isn't that what gods do? Or busy. It means, is he in the bathroom? Or traveling or napping? And he has to be aroused because that is a common thing in ancient Middle Eastern mythology and theology that gods have to be aroused. They have to be taunted. They have to be stimulated. They have to be appeased. They have to be pleased. This God, the God of Elijah and Moses, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is willful, intentional. He needs no cues, no prompting, no arousal. He's fine. God is not like all other gods. Verse 28. So they shouted louder, and then they took to cutting themselves until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued the frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifices, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, I'm going to involve you. Come here and help me. They came to him. He repaired the altar of the Lord because Jezebel had outlawed it. Anybody who touched a, a broken down altar, she destroyed all the altars. Anybody touches it, you die. Elijah said, you're going to help me rebuild the altar. So he took 12 stones, verse 31, one for each tribe, uh, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it, which was kind of unusual in that moment. Large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood and said to him, said the people around him, fill four large jars with water and pour it in the offering on the wood. Do it again, he said. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, notice the difference. The screaming, dancing, pounding, cutting, prophesying. And and Lord knows what else they were doing to provoke or stimulate their God. Elijah just simply says, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and I'm your servant. And have done all these things at your command. This is exactly the approach Moses took with Pharaoh. He wasn't there to be articulate. He wasn't there to be dramatic. He simply said, Pharaoh, you're not God. There's only one. Elijah said, I'm your servant and have done all these things at your command. Boom, the fire comes. The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, 
they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, game over. Humbly, with confidence in the word of God, Elijah proves power of God. And then he said, it gets really bad here, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let any of them get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. God stops the madness. And Elijah approaches Ahab, go and have your final, well, (laughs) he didn't really tell him that this might be your final meal. Go eat and drink for there is the sound of heavy rain. God is going to answer the prayer of Elijah. He knows it now. He's seen it. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down, and put his face between his knees. You're like, what? What's he? Is he crying? Is he upset? Is he throwing up? I mean, what's happening here? Next weekend, we're going to talk about Elijah at a real human level. Because I love the fact that when it comes to Moses, these incredible events that he was a part of, when it comes to Elijah, the Bible says this, he was a human just like us. Verse 43, Elijah says, go look at the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. I know God's going to answer this prayer. He's going to bring the rain. This is a display of faith from Elijah. The seventh time the servant responded, there is a cloud. Small as a man's hand on the horizon. Rising from the sea, Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, the rain is coming. You better get home or the floods are going to keep you from getting home. Verse 45, meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose and heavy rain started falling. I've been to this part of Israel, and flash flash floods are super common because the mountains are just, there's there's some oasis. There's a place called En Gedi, which is just amazingly beautiful, and it was actually a retreat of King David, and I've been in that place a number of times. But when the rain comes up in the mountains, you don't always know it. And so these days with technology and forecast, you can know if there's a flash flood. But in those days, they didn't know. They just knew the rain was coming and there's not been anything wet for a long time and it's going to come washing down the mountain. And so God gives Elijah supernatural power, tucking his cloak, end of verse 46, into his belt. He ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Wow. Wow. It's a big story. And there are a number of stories in the Bible where the supernatural is supercharged, and this is one of them. Not all miracles are quite like this, but this truly happened. But there's another story in the Bible involving Elijah, where the ultimate source of all superpower resides. Let me say that again. There's another story in the Bible involving Elijah, in the New Testament actually, where the ultimate source of all supernatural power resides. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. 
I think this is a very, very important text for us to study these days. For believers around the world, these are the kind of stories we need to tell. It doesn't matter how supernatural they are. It doesn't matter how miraculous they are. It doesn't matter how phenomenal they are. We need to just read them and let people decide. Do you believe this is true or not? In Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, it says this, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Again, these guys are representative of all the covenants, all the prophets. Verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. However, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said this, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. A couple observations here. Number one, Jesus' glory came from the inside. Where does the son get its glory? Where does the son get its glory? power and brightness and enormity and, 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 and energy from the inside. Same thing with Jesus. He's always been divine and he's showing it to his disciples and Moses and Elijah, representative of all God's promises, are standing there and something fascinating happens in Luke's depiction of this story. It says all of a sudden Moses and Elijah were there in glorious splendor, but their splendor was reflected on them. Jesus came out of him. Because he's God of very God, God in the flesh. And he's making it clear. And God made it clear by saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. All that Moses and Elijah were saying points to Jesus. So listen to Jesus. And Luke's depiction of this says all of a sudden Moses and Elijah were gone and Jesus was standing there alone. Observation number one, Jesus' glory comes from the inside out. Observation number two, Peter assumed some measure of equality. Peter assumed that, hey, these are the big three, I guess. We're the big three on earth. These are the big three. Why don't we build a shelter equal to them? And God says, no, no, no. No, no, no. They point to him. He is the word of God made flesh. He is the promise of God. Final observation. God the Father announces that Jesus is supreme and requires everyone to listen. You see, Moses and Elijah were used by God to prepare the way for the one who would fulfill all of their writings, all of their laws, all of the promises. Moses and Elijah were servants of and witnesses to Christ. Jesus is the truer and better Moses. Jesus is the truer and better Elijah. He was and is the fulfillment of all the law and promises of the Old Testament. Romans chapter 10, verse 4 says this, Christ is the end of the law so that 
there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the fulfillment of the law so that everyone who believes in him will be made right with God. I hope you understand that. The law stood against you, but Jesus fulfilled the law on your behalf. All you need to do is profess him and rest in him. I love how Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That's a huge statement. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are burdened, and you will find rest. You don't have to have victory over sin before you are forgiven. Did you know that? You don't have to have victory over sin before you're forgiven. Jesus paid the price for your sin. He met all the righteous requirements of the law. The, the theologians call this imputation. By faith, if you put your faith in Jesus, all the laws that stand against you, all the sins that you commit, and all the condemnation and consequences that you deserve are gone because of his righteousness. That is, if you trust him alone. But if you think you've got to figure out your sin, if you think you've got to stand uh, in the middle and just wait on options, you're not saved. You stand condemned before God. You don't have to achieve victory over sin before God forgives you. We don't have to transform ourselves by some kind of religious work or effort to stay pure. Don't get that backwards. Jesus met all of those requirements. So have you prayed? Have you prayed and said, God, please bestow upon me the righteousness of Jesus because there's no other way I can be saved. I want to leave you with this one verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. Listen very, very carefully. You can look it up later. If you're already there, that's fine, but please listen carefully. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he, for he, everyone look at me, for he, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. I'm quoting now. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's profound. That's the gospel of Jesus. For he, God, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. All the idolatry, all the perversion, all the rejection, all the doubts, all the shaking the fist at God, all the cursing of God, Jesus took it all. God made him sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Are you in Jesus the promise of God, all of God's promises find their yes in him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for 
anyone in this room who has not confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord, that they would do that now? That they would say, God in heaven, if I've never made it clear to you, I want it to be clear today. I trust Jesus alone for my salvation. I thank you for his gift of righteousness. And I claim him and him alone, never to turn away, never to turn back. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you did from eternity past to eternity future to give us righteousness so that we can be saved, we can have hope beyond this life that goes so quickly. May no one wait to repent and turn to Jesus today. I pray in his name and all of God's people said, amen. Let's stand together.